Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales with Fiona Givens. Fiona, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for those listeners who are not familiar with your work? Well, first of all, Laura, I'd like to say what a privilege it is for me to be on your podcast this morning. Let's see about myself. I sound English, but I'm really African. I was born in Nairobi, spent most of my life in East Africa and the Seychelles Islands, I was educated in boarding schools, converted to the church in Frankfurt, worked for the church office buildings for a few years, uh, went to BYU, met my husband in a comparative literature class, and um, the rest is history, I suppose one could say. You have a master's degree in comparative history or Eastern history or no, something it's, like that. it's actually European history, yes. so I... My focus was on Germany from 1942 to 1956, primarily. The question is, what on earth are you doing in Mormon studies? I was lured into this um, discipline by my husband, I suppose one could say, when he wrote his first book. I can't even remember the title. It's been so long ago. Isn't that dreadful? It's my favorite book. How can I not remember it? But anyway... Was it The Viper on the Heart? Thank you. Thank you, Laura. That was it. And so we worked closely together on it. I primarily acting as editor, but then I became more and more and more involved in his books. I had been researching uh, myself and having uh, a powerful experiences, primarily through my children, which changed my paradigm completely about God. And out of that experience and exploration through the scriptures. The God Who Weeps was born. And many of us are familiar with that book, which was followed up by The Crucible of Tao, which was quite different. No, very different. You're right. That actually sprung forth from a talk my husband gave to a young adult fireside in California. It was actually a letter he had written to one of our children who was struggling with his own faith. And the book sprung out really from those ideas that we'd been trying to understand what it was that was germane to this faith crisis that seemed to come out of nowhere but grew very, very rapidly among church members. So that was sort of a response to him and a response to our own questions. And we think it was a response to a lot of people who were struggling at the time and continue to struggle, actually. And I love that book. It is full of tools for people who are just questioning, maybe not even doubting, to approach new information they encounter. Yeah, thank you. I think it gives a broader framework in which one can analyze one's religion. And I think it gives one space to sort of turn these ideas over in one's mind and mull them over in one's heart. I, I think that's probably the greatest thing about that book is that it allows space. Where did you get the idea to write this book? The Christ Who Hills. I think its genesis was the God Who Weeps, and we recognized that as the character and attributes of God had been altered, so had the relationship of Christ to the Father in particular, and then also Christ in relationship to ourselves. And I'm not entirely sure in which book I was reading, but I came across the Eastern Christian mantra, which is, for as an Adam will die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And that struck me as being really positive. It seemed that the Eastern Christian church emphasized death and resurrection in contrast to the Western church, which emphasized sin and salvation. So I thought that required a little more digging. It actually required a wholesale immersion in the early Christian tradition with which I was 
not familiar at all, to be honest. But we felt that in writing this book, um, there's, there are so many books, excellent books that have been written on the atonement, that we had to have something to add to the conversation in ways that would help the atonement become centered in more of a cosmic perspective. And uh, so we started. A reader may be surprised that the book does not begin by talking about Christ. When I opened this book and looked at the table of contents, it became quickly apparent to me that it's almost two books in one. Do you feel like there was a necessity to lay a clear foundation before you embarked upon talking about the atonement of Christ? No, absolutely. That's exactly why we did this. Mormonism was birthed in Protestant America, but it was a Protestantism that was really influenced by Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, whose ideas went back to Augustine. We found that in comparison to the Eastern Christian Church, there had been divisions made. So, for example, Western Christianity's theological tradition always starts in the garden, always starts with the fall, which is considered a result of man's hubris because they dared to want to become like God. Whereas Mormon theology starts in pre-existent worlds with a covenant that is made. So God finding himself more intelligent among these other intelligences. And Joseph uses intelligence and spirit interchangeably. But there is a great council and um, essentially one is not sure who generates the plan, but we must have exhibited some interest or a lot of interest in, in enjoying the life of which God had, um, the more abundant life. And I think that goes back to Christ's quote, I come not only give life, but to give it more abundantly. So this, there's this idea of a plan being structured in which we were co-participants. It's huge. Because in Western Christianity, essentially we're hapless victims and can do really nothing for ourselves. But in Mormon theology, one has this uh, really potent idea of councils in which we took part and in which we sung for joy at the idea of being able to progress in such a way that we could become more like God. So whereas the Protestants take becoming joint heirs with Christ figuratively, Mormons don't. Um, we actually have a very different view of the fall in that it is more like an ascent. So we view Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, um, they have become as one of us knowing good and evil as a positive step forward. And that is in complete contradiction to the Western theological point. But it is very much in tune with Eastern Christianity. So we felt it was really, really important to lay out the two streams of thought, one in the East and one in the West, in order to create a foundation on which we could then build this theology of atonement, which we were trying to capture. I don't think it's too much out there to say that if you were to ask the average LDS member what the restoration entailed, the first thing that might come out would be the priesthood was restored, the legitimate authority. But you're saying that other things were restored as well that perhaps are just as important, especially in our daily life. And that's part of the reason you took us right back to the beginning of Christianity. Can you just tell us a few of those early Christian theologians that helped to shape the concept of Christ that persisted into the 1830s and maybe needed a little bit of correction? Well, with Eastern Christianity, it's, it's difficult to find anything particular. So let me start with the West first problem set in almost immediately. So in post-apostolic Christianity, Christians were being slaughtered. 
left, right and centre. Under the orders of the emperors, there were a litany of them, not just Nero. But also, Christians were being blamed for odd things that occurred in the village. Um, if a child died unexpectedly, then Christians were slaughtered. So they were being slaughtered. So there was a compromise that needed to be made because Christians were worshipping Christ as well as God the Father. Important theologians who had the ear of the emperor, such as Celsus, argued that Christians could not call themselves monotheists because they worshipped both the Father and the Son. So a decision had to be made, and it had to be made quickly. One could either become part of the polytheistic tradition, which was prevalent at the time, and lose oneself or gain credibility. So the early Christians, who were all Greek, then adopted the Neoplatonic model of a superior God who was inaccessible, unapproachable, and impassable, and then the Demiurge, Christ who dealt with matter and would create. In the West, that was then turned into man has absolutely no free will. God is not only sovereign, he becomes wrathful and vengeful. And so that changes the relationship between God and Christ dramatically. Christ then becomes our shield and our protector against God the Father. This is probably the plain and precious thing that was lost, that was restored, primarily from the West, because it really developed in Western Christianity, this idea that we have no free will, that whatever grace we have is imputed to us, we can never do anything good ourselves, and that God orchestrates everything. He orchestrates all the evil in the world, and he orchestrates all the good in the world. Well, that is a complete contradiction with the God whom Mormons adore and worship, and also a sundering of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son into actually a hostile relationship. They're working against each other. So God is trying to condemn and destroy, and Christ is trying to be merciful and prevent God's desire to destroy all of humanity. Well, we know that that's not true because of the restoration that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost work together in order to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. That is a huge loss of plain and precious things that was actually augmented in the Western tradition from Augustine and then exacerbated by Martin Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. One doesn't see that same trajectory in the East. So when Joseph Smith restores, he's restoring primarily the collaborative relationship between the Godhood. By pulling the Trinity apart, we have three distinct gods who are working collaboratively for our work and our glory, which means that God the Father and Christ can't be working against each other. And that was the really important thing. And of course, they're working through priesthood power. And the concept that um, priesthood power cannot be used except through loving kindness, patience, no coercion can be used. So that was done away with. And then in Protestant America, Joseph does something quite extraordinary. He restores that which was taken away by the Protestants. He restores priesthood. He restores sacraments and adds more to sacraments. And then he also restores the incredible link between the living and the dead, which the Catholics still enjoyed, but which the Protestants had completely destroyed. So that's part of it. Of course, it gets, it, we go into more detail as we continue to explore. But that's essentially why we felt it was so imp important to start this and also to reiterate how important it was those plain and precious things were that um, Joseph restored. He himself said that there were many things in the scriptures that did not accord with the revelation of the Holy Ghost to him. And so I think it's important that we understand that we are working with a flawed text. Joseph understood it. This idea of, of restoration continues. It's beautiful. The restoration didn't start and end. The restoration is ongoing. And so 
for us as LDS, it's, it's such an exciting time to be alive because there will be further light and knowledge given as we are prepared to receive it, which is, which is really extraordinarily beautiful. Joseph wasn't the only one where the Holy Ghost testified to him that something is just not right here. I think that's why so many people, when they heard the message, said, yes, this is what I've been looking for. One example that comes to mind is Wilford Woodruff. He was looking for what he saw clearly in the New Testament, but was not being taught in Protestant religions. You were talking about the concept of polytheistic versus monotheistic religion and how that needed to be cleared up. Do you think that members today still struggle with that concept? Because I think though we see three distinct gods, we would call ourselves monotheists. But we pray to the Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ, and it's been revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And then again, in the Doctrine and Covenants, the redeemed Christ speaks to us in authority. I still think it gets quite confusing. No, uh, we are not monotheistic as a religion. You're absolutely right, Laura. I'm not sure that we're polytheistic. I think we could definitely say we're tritheistic because we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So there are three distinct entities all working together. So you're right. So we, we really cannot call ourselves monotheistic because we believe that all three, we pray to the Father through the Son, in the name of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit also has great influence in our prayers. So when we cannot articulate what it is, the Holy Spirit then comes in and empowers us to be able to articulate or to be able to... And so there's definitely a collaboration of all three. And for me, I think this is one of the things that I think is so beautiful about our gospel is the fact that we've been invited into helping others heal in the way Christ has shown the example. Because when one looks at Christ's life, essentially, he's healing. In every single miracle, he's healing somebody from a psychological ailment, an emotional ailment, a physical ailment. And what I find so striking is that, one, the idea of saviors on Mount Zion is not something with which Mormons are not familiar. They're very familiar with that turn of phrase. Generally, we associate it with the vicarious work for the dead. But it has a much more contemporary and daily applicability when we look at Messiah 18 and the, the covenants we make at baptism. We don't have any um, record of this, but we do know that the early saints articulated covenants at their baptism. We're assuming the covenants they articulated were the, the covenants found in Messiah 18. And I would love to be able to see that come back. The first covenant is to carry each other's burdens. The second is to mourn. And the third is to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. And I think there would be such strength in, you know, before a community covenanting, I covenant that I will carry your burdens. I covenant that I will mourn when you mourn. I covenant that I will comfort you when you stand in need of comfort. And then I think it's really interesting that then we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. We are adopted into Christ's family. Being adopted into Christ's family is being adopted into the divine family. And I think it's very interesting because when I'm looking at collaboration, I'm trying to see what each member of the Godhead brings to the tables. Yes, they do share in all of these priesthood powers, but there must be something distinctive for each of them. And then it was only a few weeks ago, so it didn't make it into the book. And it occurred to me that they're there in the baptismal covenants. So when we covenant to mourn, the God who mourns is the God who weeps. The God who carries our burdens, most especially in Gethsemane and on the cross, is Christ. And the God who comforts is the Holy Spirit. So you have there this beautiful covenant that we are making with the Godhead to facilitate healing 
with each one of us. And that has never been articulated as far as I know in any Christian religion. I, I haven't found it in the Eastern Christian tradition. And I think for Joseph, it wasn't just the missteps, some of them really grave in early Christianity and later Christianity that he was trying to restore. But he was trying to restore the covenants we made in the pre-existence, the covenants made in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve and God on behalf of all of us, which I think was primarily these three covenants. So Joseph was trying to go back to the or text, to the very, very beginning. And I think he did so to some extent most successfully. And for me, I think this is one of the greatest contributions because the emphasis is on healing rather than on sin. Sin has a tendency to create hierarchies because you can always find someone who has sinned more greatly than you. Pain and suffering, however, democratize. I don't think any one of us would dare to say, well, my pain is greater than your pain. Pain has a tendency to pull us together. If we're pulled together, we can create Zion. And Zion at the end of the day is heaven. And that is what we were trying to create. So the emphasis we think should be on healing. And we think we find that role model for healing in Christ. Elder Renland also mentioned it. It wasn't in this last conference, but the conference before where he talked about Israel being diseased and that Christ wanted to heal them of their disease. So I took that as sort of a prelude to this book. It was, it was really incredibly beautiful how he described, uh, perhaps this is the most magnificent of his, and there are many aspects of the atonement, but of healing that which is broken. I really love where you took back the baptismal covenant to the early days where they used to recite Mosiah 18. My husband and I read this book aloud together, and I would suggest that to listeners. If you're not familiar with the Givens work, every sentence is beautiful. It just is amazing, and it's something to be shared. I think sometimes when we talk about being baptized, we see it as an individual undertaking, a covenant between a person and God. And when you bring Mosiah 18 in, you see it's a step towards creating Zion. Not only do you have this ordinance, not only are you making this first step, but you're agreeing to be part of a community. And it's that community that keeps us together in times of pain, in questioning, Sometimes during the sacrament, it's a good time to remember our baptismal covenants. But are they the part of the covenants where we agree to be part of Zion? Or where we agree to do what we say we'll do and follow all the rules? And so I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. We had never heard that in little nuance of history. I think in our little bag of restoration doctrines, many of us would put the pre-existence, and we would tie that to a verse in the DNC, and then just one verse in Abraham 3. But as you have traced the history of Christianity, this idea of the pre-existence was amongst the first Christians and didn't disappear until about 600 AD. Could you review for us just a little bit where that idea came and how pervasive was it? Was it just one or two theologians speaking in an echo chamber or was this something that was accepted? I think it was generally accepted. So we hear it in Irenaeus and these are important things because the first person of whom we have any record is Ignatius. And Ignatius was 
uh, one of the, the, the earliest who followed the apostles, and then he was followed by Polycarp and then Irenaeus. And Polycarp, it is suggested, was um, taught by John the Revelator. So the, the link between the apostles and the early Christians is really, really close. And you hear it echoed in Irenaeus. You hear it more powerfully echoed a little later on in Origen. But then he was anathematized in the 6th century. Most of his works were destroyed. And this beautiful idea of pre-existence was considered heretical and dropped from the record. But you're right, it kept coming back. Terrell's written a fabulous book uh, that traces pre-existence from Babylon until the contemporary. Robert Frost wrote a beautiful poem on the pre-existence. You see it in the Cambridge Platonist. So it, it has such resonance that it continues to reappear throughout history. And, and it cannot disappear entirely. It's, it's so resonant, this idea. And then you find it picked up in John Milton's Paradise Lost, where he spends an incredible amount of time actually talking about the war in heaven, which is the pre-existence. And that may actually have um, facilitated the conversion of many of the Protestants in America because what had been done was John Milton's text, Paradise Lost, is full of very cumbersome, unless one is very familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, one tends to get lost. So what happened is a more accessible paradise lost. So all of those allusions to Greek and Roman mythology were removed from the text. And it was published in the thousands and uh, and distributed and actually read more frequently than the Bible or the New Testament. So it is not unlikely that many of the early Protestants in America were familiar with John Milton's poem and recognized the echoes of pre-existence in it. Also in that is this idea of this violent God. And there is this conversation where God goes on and he says, you know, I know these Adam and Eve will fall because they're weak. They will readily listen to Satan's glozing lies and he's getting ready to, you know, get to this point where he's going to destroy them all. And then he mentions the word mercy and it's as though Christ jumps in because, oh, oh, there's the word and I, I, will, I will do the mercy. So you have this thing going on. The idea of this wrathful, vengeful God was also dominant in America. Jonathan Edwards, by all accounts, was a lovely man, but unfortunately he's only known for that terrifying sermon he gave on sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Joseph would have been aware of that. So I think for Joseph, that promise that he would not be rebuked if he approached God gave him the courage to go into the grove and approach God. And the God with whom he conversed was not the God of Protestant America or of John Milton. And I think think it's Greenleaf Whitty who actually says those people who were lonely and searching for a God who loved them would easily be drawn to this beautiful, ennobling theology Joseph was articulating. And I think it's very interesting that the Restoration Scriptures, I call them transitional scriptures. The language of the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine of and Covenants is very 19th century American Protestant. It would have to be in order to resonate with 19th century American Protestants if it was a very different language. Brigham Young actually said this himself. He said, were the Book of Mormon to be written in any other century, it would be very, very different from that which was produced in the 19th century because of the religious sensibilities. Each century has different religious sensibilities. But the Book of Mormon is transitional because only in the Restoration Scriptures do we have Moses 7, a full-length treatise on a vulnerable weeping God, and Jacob 5 in the Book of Mormon. Again, a full-length treatment of a God who is laboring and working to preserve each one of the trees. You have glimpses of that God in the Old Testament. You've got to hunt for them. 
But our restoration scriptures are the only ones that actually articulate those. And then what is even more remarkable, in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, in 1 Nephi 13, verse 32, the whole section is about the pain and precious things being removed from the text, which is calling, uh, and, and, the, and the Gentiles are blinded thereby. But in verse 32 in the 1830 edition, it says, because of the plain and precious things that have been removed, it refers to not blindness, but woundedness, the woundedness of the Gentiles. That's 21st century rhetoric. We can all understand woundedness. But the 19th century readers couldn't. It was a foreign word. What is woundness? We understand sin. We understand blindness. We understand all sorts of these terms. But woundedness was, for some reason, anyway, it was taken out. In the 1837, it's been restored to blindness. But you feel that Joseph is trying to emancipate his people by showing them how expansive and how glorious the gospel of Jesus Christ is. But he lamented, you know, these people will give up everything, travel thousands of miles, and yet shatter to pieces like glass when a new doctrine is presented to them. So he was having great difficulty as a result of which I didn't, don't think he was able to articulate all of the things that he did want to articulate about the restoration. They may not have been familiar with the word woundedness, but they certainly experienced it. If you read all, all their children's deaths and losing so much to restoration in this restored gospel. Absolutely. Before I move on to part two of this book, I want to thank you once again for sorting through origin, <laughs> which is not easy reading, to know which materials to go to to educate us on, for a better term, the genealogy of the Christianity before the restoration. Thank you. Moving to part two. One thing that stuck out to me was that you repeatedly referred to our heavenly parents as working together on this plan that they had made for us. In fact, at one place you say our heavenly parents clarified precepts and instituted ordinances. When I first read that, it was a bit jarring to me, a little bit bold. Did you feel it was bold when you wrote it? No, I don't think so. I don't think it was bold during the Restoration either. Erastus Snow said there could never be a God that did not comprise male and female, man and woman. Both Elder Holland and Elder Ballard specifically um, referred to the role of divine parents in this plan. And then Elder Holland talks about heavenly parents anxious for their children, wishing them along and waiting to gather them home. So I think the idea of heavenly parents has fallen out of fashion, perhaps, but the idea was, which was pretty prevalent and accepted among the early people of the Restoration. And then, of course, we have Eliza Snow's poem, and it's interesting that President Snow actually attributed the revelation to her rather than to Joseph. This is Eliza's revelation. So we have in our hymnody this idea of a heavenly mother who is equally involved with a father ensuring our return home. So I don't think it was as bold as recapitulating an idea that hasn't that has sort of fallen out of fashion, but is coming back in general conference talks. One hears often now the use of heavenly parents, the mention of heavenly parents. So I think it's coming back. I think it's a very good thing. We do hear it more often. In the last decade, there's been 21 references to heavenly parents. And in just this most recent conference, there's been four or five. My jarring and my... I guess hesitation was, whereas we talk about heavenly parents in general terms, it's becoming more comfortable. Mm. It, uh, it's still, there's a hesitation institutionally mm. 
to use a heavenly mother as a co-participant. For example, many, many letters have been written to the general young women's president saying, could we please change the young woman's motto to say, we are daughters of our heavenly parents. I was impressed in the most recent news releases about the new Come Follow Me type curriculum for priesthood and release society, that the verbiage said that the women and the men would be functioning underneath the priesthoods. Did you notice that? Oh, you know, absolutely, it, it, that it is collaborative. Yes. Um, it is more collaborative. And I, and I think... You know, in my research, I'm particularly reading through that magnificent book on the Relief Society, the tome, that there you can see much more collaboration in the early church than has been now. So Elder Ballard, I think, receives an incredible amount of credit for this because it's, it's sort of been his sole mission to circumnavigate the globe and talk about councils. So he's taking us back to those pre-existent councils that we see so much in Abraham, and in two verses, we have the word, the verb counseled rep- repeated four times as we counseled in the beginning, as we counseled in the beginning. So, yes, I, you know, I agree with you, and I am ju- I'm just so thrilled because one cannot create Zion without collaboration. You know, that's the whole thing. I, and I, I thought you were so, ah, oh, you articulated that so beautifully, this idea of not only making covenants with 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 God, but making covenants with the community. And for us to create Zion, there has to be collaboration. For there to be no poor among us, poor psychologically, emotionally. And we all have to be working together. One sees that very much in the early church. And it's just really wonderful to see that emphasis happening now. It's a very exciting time in which to live. Oh, I would echo that. It is exciting. I see so many wonderful changes happening, progress being made, again, back to the line upon line. As an independent scholar, do you feel like it's okay for you to push forward this idea of heavenly parents as you do throughout the last half of your book, even though maybe institutionalized it hasn't happened yet, but it certainly hasn't been rejected. Do you feel it's helpful to put that idea out there and that comforting feeling out there for women who may feel lost? We're told in the temple that we'll be co-collaborators, but that doesn't really translate outside of the temple so much. Right. No, I absolutely agree. It was definitely a deliberate decision that we made to incorporate, to use the term heavenly parents all the way through. One, because it is theologically sound. And two, because I think you're right. I think there are many women who are sort of stumbling and wondering what their place is. And to understand that Heavenly Mother was a co-collaborator in the plan. Elder Ballard says, well, he describes the plan as designed by heavenly parents who love us. And so perhaps, you know, Hopefully in time, the young women's motto will be changed because it is more theologically sound to use heavenly parents rather than just heavenly father, given the fact that our relationship to God is that of parent to child. Again, it takes a while for these ideas to build momentum and steam. The fact, as you said, the uh, heavenly parents, the, the, the quotation heavenly parents or the citation is being used more and more often by the brethren themselves, I think, is a very good sign that space is being created for a greater inclusion of Heavenly Mother into this plan because she was obviously part of it. And as Elder Holland says, I don't know if I... Yeah, no, here, here is his quote. What would this world's inhabitants pay to know that Heavenly Parents are reaching across stream and mountains and deserts, anxious to hold them close. So I think particularly for women, understanding that it's not just the father, but the mother who is anxious to hold them close, I think will be very empowering. 
And will help to dispel that fear that we're just going to be eternal wombs in the eternities. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, no, no. This is. I'm so glad you mentioned this because this is very... The 19th century were very literal, and our early fathers, particularly the Pratts, were specifically literal about the idea of um, that women would conceive and be pregnant for nine months. And we have absolutely no idea what the next life is going to be. But Brigham Young did shed light on it and talked about the fact, the role of women in creating space and environments for new generations, new generations of intelligences and spirits to come forth. And he wasn't talking about literal procreation. Um, he was, and, and the scriptures actually don't attest. In fact, they, they negate this idea of physical procreation in the next life because Joseph was, he used the, the um, as I mentioned before, he used intelligence and spirit together all the time. And intelligence has no beginning. Therefore, spirit has no beginning. Therefore, intelligence or spirit in the vocabulary of Joseph means that we are co-intelligent with God, that we are beings of light and truth. We wanted more light and truth. And I think that's why there is such an emphasis in the restoration not so much in Christianity, but definitely in restoration on the idea of adoption rather than remission of sins, because this is a formal adoption into the divine family. And then the sealings, of course, also bear witness to the fact that we are sealed, you know, families, you know, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, as well as husbands and wives. So I think our, our scriptures actually stand against this idea of women being eternally pregnant, and that's all their function will be. I think we forget the verbiage is organized, not created. Exactly. That's brilliant. I would like to talk about a couple of the theological concepts you presented that might be new to readers. One of them you just touched on if we are spirit children of heavenly parents, we were organized from intelligences. We already belong to them. Why do we need to be adopted into their family? I think the most important aspect of the new and everlasting covenant is this idea of sealing. And I think that plays a huge part in the adoption. If we switch the terms we adopted to we are sealed into the family of Christ, then I think we have a much better understanding of what exactly is going on, this permanent sealing. So mortality is an education in helping us to receive the more abundant life, the more abundant life being that which the, uh, which the gods live, which Christ promised us. For me, adoption is more than adoption into the family, but a ceiling, something permanent, something that affords us the promise, the covenant, that we will continue through this life and into the next life and continue to grow. Because this life, God said it would be short because it would be so painful, which is a blessing. But the idea that we stop and are judged and then put into different kingdoms was as alien to the early Christian fathers, Eastern Christian fathers, as it was to Joseph. So, for example, the death of Alvin had a really powerfully painful experience on Joseph particularly. And so when he realized that in the terrestrial kingdom comprised those who would have accepted the gospel, uh, had an opportunity to receive it, he knew that Alvin would be there. But in a later revelation, he sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom. And so for him, he suddenly realizes that there is progression. and There's continual progression. He said there'll be aeons of time before we have progressed to where the gods are. So this is this continual education and the ceiling ensures that this education shall continue for all mankind because we are all part of the divine family. What I'm hearing from you is that the adoption that you're talking about has less to do 
with sealing nuclear families together than ensuring that we'll return to a heavenly father and mother who created this plan initially. Absolutely. It is the entire human family to be sealed. The other concept is about exactly what the atonement of Christ is meant to do. And I want to read your words. Appeasing some abstract justice or propitiating a sovereign God is not the point. What is the point? Well, first of all, we need to decide that what, what is the abstract justice. And that goes very much back to the Protestant and Catholic, actually, views of atonement. It's penal substitution theory is what it really is, is that you have a God who... So how it is, is man sinned, man fell, and somebody has to pay for it. And it will need to be a God in order to pay for all of the sins mankind has committed. And therefore, that is the sacrifice that he makes and is called penal substitution theory. And it has significant problems. One, you have this sovereign God. And when we're talking about sovereign, we're not talking about a gentle king. We're talking about a relationship between a sovereign and a vassal. So there is a huge divide between the sovereign and us, between God and us. And God has, and Christ walks in and says, you know, I will take all of the penalties for their sins um, so that they might perhaps be saved. And there is no, there's no guarantee there in Catholicism and Protestantism that, that we will be saved. Mormonism does not believe that. One, we believe that God and Christ are working together. There is no sovereign if you have a collaborative Godhead, you have three distinct individuals working together. There is no hierarchy. There is no hierarchy in Zion. There is none. So there is no hierarchy in heaven. So that's immediately displaced. So what that's replaced with then, and I think this is really important if we go back and discuss three things. So in Genesis 3.22, God says they have become as one of us in partaking of the fruit knowing good and evil. We use the Hebraic sense, experiencing good and evil. In her Ode to Joy in Moses 5.11, Eve uses the exact same language. Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed. We never should have known good and evil. So that's twice that's mentioned. So immediately I'm now riveted. What could that possibly mean? And how do we associate evil with the joy of her redemption and evil with God. Well, we can't. So in Moses 6, God and Adam have this very peculiar conversation. As any parent, you know, as all parents, as myself, it's like, what did I do wrong? My, my children have gone off and suddenly fratricide is becoming the great way to eliminate one's siblings one doesn't like. And it's, what did I do? And, and the Lord comforts him and says, your children are whole from the foundation of the world. Then in the very next verse, he says, whereas thy children are conceived in sin. And suddenly you're blown away. It's like, wait a minute, what happened to the whole and conceived in sin? That's Catholic language. So either God had this dramatic, rapid conversion to Catholicism, or that word sin does not mean what we think it means. And he continues. He says, and sin conceiveth in their hearts, and sin groweth up in them. And then he defines sin and evil by saying, wherefore they must taste the bitter in order to prize the good. So now we're talking about bitterness. Now we're talking about suffering. So when we revisit the other verses, what God is saying, they have become as one of us knowing good and suffering, joy and suffering. And then Eve says, we never should have known joy and suffering and the redemption. So what is the redemption then from? God talks about suffering. Um, the easiest way for me to visualize this is schizophrenia. So a child is born. There is no evidence that the child has schizophrenia, but it grows up with him. No evidence that he has schizophrenia until he turns 19 or 20 and starts hearing those competing voices in his head. So it's, that's bitter. That's the bitterness with which we suffer. So when God is saying, 
we are conceived in sin. We are conceived in bitterness. We are conceived in woundedness. This is a wounded world into which we are born. And we all inherit wounded baggage from our families through DNA, through genetic structures, all of those. So when we look at the atonement then, we see that this is more about suffering than it is about sin. Yes, we do sin. I'm not annihilating sin. We do sin. But we can all attest to the fact that sin is suffering. Sin causes suffering to ourselves, to other people. And then there is the collateral suffering of earthquakes, maniacs who suddenly shoot into a crowd of people at a concert, you know, all of this other stuff with which, over which we have absolutely no control. But it's the collected suffering of mankind, I believe, that adds a greater dimension to the atonement than sin. Not to say that that is not part of the atonement, but I think it has been, sin has been focused on so much that we have forgotten that the atonement is much more expansive. I think it was Elder Bruce Hafen, actually, in his article years and years ago that resonated radically in my mind and started my mind on this journey of exploration as to what other things is it that the atonement, what is perhaps the principal thing of the atonement, and it is as Christ exemplified in his life. It is to heal. It is to heal us of our wounds and injuries. And so when Elder Uchtdorf, President Uchtdorf, talks about, I do hope I've written it down in here because it's absolutely, I did, absolutely beautiful. I was invited to give a fireside at BYU and at the end of it, a young man stood up and, well, he raised his hand and said, Sister Givens, what about judgment? And I asked him, I said, how do you feel when you hear the word judgment? He said, I feel fear. I am afraid. I said, that is not God speaking to you. And then President Uchtdorf follows it with this. That day of judgment will be a day of mercy and love, a day when broken hearts are healed, when tears of grief are replaced with tears of gratitude, when all will be made right. That is the atonement. I think most members will agree that we are punished for our own sins and not Adam's transgression. So that part of the penal restitution in our minds is clear, yet we still have restoration doctrine that emphasizes that penal component. In the book, you refer to some great parts of DNC 19, where it says our punishment is not going to be endless. But it also says there's eternal laws that need to be met. If a rule is broken, there is a penalty that needs to be paid. And then you have this great outpouring where the Redeemer is almost begging Martin Harris to repent so that he doesn't have to pay for his own sins. How do you balance that part of the restoration, Mm -hmm. that scripture, with this idea that the atonement is more about healing? Does it have to be an either or? Or is it just that we're concentrating too much on the penal aspects? I know I grew up in the church thinking the atonement, if I'm just good, I don't need that. I can spare the Lord from suffering until you have that time in your life where you fall to your knees. As uh, I think it was James Farrell called it, falling to heaven, mm-hmm. where you, you reach out and you say, I can't do it myself. Please put your arms around me. Help sustain me. That's where you know I feel like that part of nurturing is something Mm -hmm. that has to be so personal. And whether it's written in scripture or given in a talk, until you experience it, you don't realize what an incredible sustaining gift it is. Absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, yes, there has been an overemphasis on sin and 
payment for those sins. Uh, it's very Protestant. Part of our problem is that we're still hanging on to that Protestant legacy. And two, I think it's vocabulary. So we have God saying that he would never create any laws or give any precepts that were not guaranteed to bring about the greatest happiness. So when we violate those precepts and those laws, we injure ourselves. We're injured also. I think it is a, a question of vocabulary. So for example, eternal, we think, is a linear, but eternal is not. Eternal is a title of God. God has several titles. Man of holiness is my name. Eternal is my name. And then in, I think it's, um, I always get my scriptures incorrect. It's Doctrine and Covenants 76. I'm not sure if the verse is 46. It may be, but there is that expression, where I am, they cannot come, worlds without end, which is what triggered President Joseph Fielding Smith, Elder McConkie, and President Kimball to assume that there is no eternal progression. But in the 19th century, world without ends was another name for God. It's important that we understand that when we were talking about things that are eternal, we're actually talking about God, not time. With those three things, if we put them together, the idea that these, um, I, I don't like using the word commandments because I feel that it now has a perjurative connotation to it. I would rather use precepts because that's what God uses to begin with. And then also this idea that I want your happiness. I am not looking for a way to punish you. There are natural consequences that follow. We, we recognize that there would be natural consequences that followed that laws, plates colliding, would create massive earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and that sort of thing. That is a consequence of what happens. So when we are not adhering to the precepts, there are consequences that follow which we will find injurious. So with Isaiah, the emphasis is on here is a man of sorrows and he is a man of grief. With his stripes, we are healed. So the focus in the New Testament, particularly the word, if we look at saving, which we always associate with sin, but the original word is sodzo, which means heal. And if we go back to the original Greek, we see that in each case, Christ is healing rather than saving. He's healing. He can be called the Sota, the great healer. So he is healing us from the injury of our sins. Of course, it's not automatic. We have to come to him. You're right, this idea of falling to heaven. But what is so beautiful about our gospel and, and Diedrich Bonhoeffer, that courageous theologian of the 20th century, said the same thing. The power of God's love will draw all mankind to him. And so when every knee bows and confesses, it will be voluntary. So when we crash and burn in the face of our suffering because of our sin, we reach out to him for mercy and for strength and for comfort. And he never says no. He never says no. He never says, you have sinned too greatly. I can no longer help you. I think it was Elder Packer who said, there is no sin from which we cannot receive complete forgiveness. And so this idea of recognizing that in Christ is the source not only of our forgiveness, but the healing of what we have done. When the Lord says, be ye therefore perfect, even as I, your Father in heaven, is perfect, he's not using the word in the way most Mormons think he is doing. He's not saying you must be the most law-abiding, you must follow with exactness every single precept that is outlined. That's not what he's saying. The original in Greek is whole. You can use that. I was lame and I was whole. I was injured and I was whole. And in the German, it's vollkommen. And Joseph felt that the Luther translation of the Bible was the most correct. Because in that, not only do we find whole as in complete, fulfilling the measure of our creation, which I think is what is definitely implied in be ye therefore perfect. In the Greek is you shall be made perfect. There isn't I see it as a subjunctive, but Terrell went back to the Greek, and it's you shall. And the you shall is I shall make you 
whole and perfect. That is the atonement, is I shall make you whole. And then in the German, the word for savior is Heiland. And Heil comes from the verb Heilen, and Land is a place. So Christ is the place of healing. So yes, sin involves suffering, but the promise is that though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And that is the power of the atonement. And if we trust in that, if we trust in his absolute love, that it never wavers, it doesn't matter, as Julian of Norwich said, whether we be foul or clean, his love is absolute and in the end irresistible. And so all of us will come of our own accord to the place of healing, to be forgiven of our sins and to be made whole. You've called this view of the atonement of Christ that you've shared in your book a seismic shift in atonement theology. You say Mormon culture has not fully shaken off what, and you quote Aaron from the Book of Mormon, called the tradition of the fathers, which were not correct. How would your view of the judgment differ from maybe the false traditions that we have inherited? And what can we as a Mormon culture, that would be me, I'm part of the culture, you, maybe our listeners do to help ensure that we maybe put aside these false traditions in light of a restored Christ? Uh, That's such a beautiful question. Thank you. I think it comes back to what I was just saying. For us and for Mormonism, God's love is absolute. So if we go back to the God of Enoch and the God of Jacob 5, he grieves. And he grieves because of our suffering. So when God the Father, because he addresses himself as man of holiness, I think this is lovely, and maybe this will help. Man of holiness is my name. The son of man is my son, and we are mankind. Is that not beautiful? I think we as Mormons forget that we are mankind, that we are like God, that within us is a divine spirit to choose a more abundant life, which required incredible courage. I don't think we believe in absolute love. I think we we often feel, no, God's love and Christ's atonement cannot cover what I have done. And that is very much the Protestant traditions of the fathers, that only a few will be saved. So maybe we've expanded the few into a crowd, but I think we still see us not all becoming celestialized, that my parents can make it or I can't, or I can make it, but my son can't. And then suddenly, not only have we destroyed the concept of Zion and the strength to build it, but we are hanging on to those traditions of the fathers. So when God the Father answers Enoch, he says, Wherefore shall not the heavens weep, seeing that these my children, not fortunate to have come with Zion, to you shall continue to suffer? He does not say sin. I think that's absolutely important. He does not say sin in his conversation with Adam. He refers to bitter. He does not mean evil in the way we think of it. He means bitterness and he means suffering. The only way that we can attain the absolute life is through suffering. And it's not as though sin took God by surprise. And this is one of the beautiful things of Clement of Alexandria, where he says, mortality brings passions. That is what mortality does. It brings anger, greed, lasciviousness, hate, envy. It's part and parcel. It's not what defines us. It is part of what we need to learn to overcome in order to become more Christ-like. So Anybody as ridiculous as me who got up one morning and prayed for patience, well, one, we know that God has a very wicked sense of humor. Then everything that could possibly go wrong that day went wrong. And it was as though God was saying, really, Fiona, you think you're going to perfect this attribute in one day? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm just letting you know. But this idea of absolute love recurs again and again. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that it is the power of this love that draws us to him. I think our problem is not 
feeling worthy to receive it. And that in and of itself is a problem because when Julian had the vision of the servant running to fulfill the mission of her God, which is what we have all done, we've all accepted missions, she stumbles and falls, she sins. When Julian of Norwich looks to God to see if she can notice a change in his countenance now that this daughter of his has sinned, Verily, she says there was none. In fact, God goes on to say, Wherefore should I not reward her more richly for the dangers that she was willing to undergo out of love for me? President Monson once said, We of all people should be the most happy. I think what he was talking about was this idea of the abundant love of God, that we can trust in his love, the power of his love, the power of the atonement really is that which can atone all of our sins, that can help it, that can strengthen us. That's why the Spirit was sent, not only to testify of the power of the atonement, but to testify the comforter. It was a friend in Italy who actually, you know, comforter in Italian is with strength, to strengthen us, to enable us to continue to move forward. It doesn't matter if we're crawling. It really doesn't matter the speed at which we're moving. God doesn't care. I can say this from personal experience in my own life. It's just keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. I'm here. Thank you, Fiona. Appreciate visiting with you today. Thank you, Laura. It has been such a privilege for me. Thank you. Be sure to check out ldsperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.